Good morning, everybody. How are you? Isn't this weather nice? Yes, it is. If you don't think it's nice, check what's happening in New England. You'll feel immediately better, I promise. Uh, welcome. My name is Bruce Garner. If we haven't met, I'm the senior pastor here at Cross Point. And this is a special Sunday because we are celebrating with our Christian school its 50 years of ministry. And I just want to add a personal word uh, of my gratitude for our staff, our faculty. You've just been absolutely exceptional. Everybody's life got harder once the pandemic began. Uh, the task of teaching in person and online and sometimes both at once with all of the restrictions, uh, that's been a real, real challenge. But in a time of crisis for so many and so much suffering and loss that so many of us have endured, uh, God has blessed this place, and Liberty Christian has actually grown quite a bit through the pandemic. So if you're new to our school, uh, we're so glad that you're entrusting us with the education of your children. It's meaningful to me because when my family and I moved here 15 years ago, with our, uh, Sharice and I moved here with our two sons, they uh, were raised in Mexico. The younger boy was born in Mexico. Uh, they were difficult students because they looked like standard issue garners, but they didn't speak much English. And the staff and the faculty of this school just took them in, made a cross-cultural adjustment. Missionary kids are weird, and I can say that because I, I, I was a missionary kid. Uh, we need a lot of help. And my kids and my wife and I received so much of that help. In fact, it was a Liberty Christian faculty member who was also a Sunday school teacher at the church that helped my older son take his last steps of faith and put his trust in Jesus as Savior. And Ryan has served the Lord from that day uh, to this. So Liberty will always have a very special place in my heart. So families, staff, faculty, Mr. Whitmire in particular, thank you for your love. Thank you for serving the Lord and for serving others. Let me pray with you, and we're going to open the Bible together. Does that sound good? Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for these families and these children, the students, Lord, that are represented here. Uh, thank you for three generations that can sing together at once of your faithfulness. We recognize that even when we are faithless and forgetful and contentious, you remain always ever faithful. And I know, Lord, there's people that have come in with heavy burdens on their hearts. Uh, thank you, Jesus, that you have promised to not only meet with them, but to be with them, to never leave us or forsake us, to be with us every day of our lives. So we want to open up our heart and our understanding to you. Help me as I open your word with my family of faith. May it be time that is well spent and proven by obedience to you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in the Gospel of Luke. We've been in the Gospel of Luke for quite some time. If you're new to Crosspoint, here's our commitment to you. We will always teach you the Bible. God, for his own reasons, in part because that's how he gets the glory, uses ordinary human beings like me to teach the Bible. But the greatest gift anybody could give you, including the man speaking to you, is to open God's word with you and help you understand what God himself says. My opinion won't get you very far. My opinion won't even get you a cup of coffee at the local coffee house. We need to hear from God, and we've been doing that for years now, primarily by taking a book of the Bible and just going straight through it. We take detours and we take breaks to take other sections in the Bible in when a book is very long, as is the Gospel of Luke. But we've reached Luke chapter 20. If you'll open the Bible there, Luke chapter 20. And if you're here for the first time or it's been a while, the challenge of that, of this approach is you're dropping right into the middle of the story. So let me orient you to what's happening. If you're completely new to the Bible, when I say the Gospel of Luke, I'm referring to one of the four historical authoritative accounts from God's Word that tell us about the life of Jesus. Luke is the third. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke was not an eyewitness of the life of Jesus. He tells us that in the very beginning of his Gospel, but he was a close friend and companion to men who were. And with the diligence of the journalist and the historian... He interviews them, he talks to them about what they saw, and he writes, he says, an orderly account of everything Jesus did. 
Like all gospel accounts, think of it in terms of a modern biography, it's necessarily selective. It can't tell you every word. It can't tell you every story. But like every biographer, Luke wants to tell you the truth. And by the time we get to where we are today, Luke chapter 20, Jesus has been through a lot and he's been doing much. All the way back in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, Luke shows a turning point in the story of Jesus because it tells us that Jesus looked toward Jerusalem with determination. To use Luke's picturesque language, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. He was determined to go there. In Luke chapter 19 and 20, Jesus enters Jerusalem. That's where we were last Sunday. Bible students call that the triumphal entry. And it's a little bit ironic that we call that because though Jesus was received as a king, he was not on his way to be crowned, he was on his way to be killed. He knew it though not all of the crowd did. Even his disciples are going to be shocked at the treatment that Jesus received in the days that followed. But Jesus knows exactly what he's doing, and he is making great claims about himself on his way into Jerusalem. Part of the task of the pastor and the Bible teacher is to step back with you into time and history to help you see what these ancient symbols mean, because Jesus is being very deliberate. He's coming in not on a charger, but on a simple animal. He's walked all the way to Jerusalem, but he adopts a humble mount on the way in because he's connecting himself to a prophecy made all the way back in Zechariah chapter 9. And Jesus is very deliberately presenting himself as the King and the Messiah and the Savior of Israel. Having entered Jerusalem, he immediately goes to the temple in Luke's account and cleans house. The temple in Jesus' day was the place where people could go to meet with God. And what has evidently happened now again in the temple is that men instead had made the temple a place for commerce. Reading between the lines in another account, it seems that people themselves were irreverently using the temple as a shortcut as they made their way through the city. They had evidently occupied the court of the Gentiles where people who were not part of Israel could come and meet with God. In other words, they've excluded people that God wants to reach and they've profaned the temple by making it a place of personal enrichment instead of a place where people could hear from God. So Jesus, as the Son of God with authority, puts an end to all of that. He presents himself as king, messiah, and savior. He restores worship in the temple. And all of this clarity is going to create a collision. Maybe you've noticed, if you are clear with people, you will also find yourself in a collision with people. If you tell people what you actually believe and what you really mean, you're going to discover in your own way that not everybody is going to like it. And the question in Luke chapter 20 is simple. The authorities are going to come in force to Jesus and ask him one question. By what authority are you doing any of this? How dare you? Who put you in charge? Who made you the boss? Who sent you? Who gave you the authority to represent yourself in this way? to welcome the praises from people on the way in who recognize who Jesus is. His disciples, were told in Luke 19, put their clothing in the middle of the road so that this simple mount of Jesus could walk over them. They sing to him from a verse in Psalm 118 saying, blessed is the one, blessed is the king, they say, who comes in the name of the Lord. By what authority? Who put you in charge? Who told you you could do all this? The question, though 2,000 years old, is extremely relevant today because it is a question of authority. We're living, at least in my lifetime, I, in my lifetime, I know there have been much worse times in our nation where we have been even more divided. We had a civil war after all. But in my lifetime, this is the most divided, the most contentious, the most toxic our country has ever been. And if you've been following the news, the question at the center of all this conflict is always authority. Who's in charge? Who did that? 
Why did they do that? They don't have the right to do that. Maybe you've noticed a little commotion in the stock market the last two days, even if you didn't have any money in it. Have you noticed that there's been a little contention in the stock market lately? People are suing each other left and right. Probably the only people happy in these days are the attorneys who are going to bring the, bring the lawsuits and those who may win or lose, but they'll at least get paid by defending the lawsuits. It all has to do with authority. Authority is a relevant question in every American life because sometimes people dare to do things that they have no right to do. You may have seen a very good and famous movie, I believe it actually won an Oscar years ago, called Catch Me If You Can. Do you remember that? That is a story that if it were entirely fictitious, nobody would like it. If somebody had just made that character up, it wouldn't be much fun. The reason it's so fun is because Frank Abagnale actually did all that stuff. If you've forgotten his story, when he was 15 years old, 15 years old, until the time he was 21, think about that, in six years, a man with the audacity to fake it presented himself as some of the most distinguished professionals in our culture. He claimed to be an airline pilot for Pan Am, and according to some estimates, flew a million miles as a pilot, deadheading. One time they gave him the courtesy of flying the plane at 30,000 foot altitude. He said at the end that he really took that seriously because he didn't know at that time how to even fly a kite. He presented himself as the head of pediatrics at another hospital in Georgia. The only reason he gave up that con is because a child nearly died because being just barely an old teenager, he had no idea how to help a baby. He did that because he had the audacity to present himself with fake uniforms and with fake credentials in all kinds of places. He knew just enough to talk the lingo and people who weren't expecting an 18-year-old to pretend to be a pilot bought it. And that's what the religious authorities think Jesus is doing in Luke chapter 20. Read with me, please, Luke chapter 20. Every detail matters. Look what Jesus is doing. Jesus has come in. He's very specifically presented himself as king. He's cleansed the temple. Now he's back in the temple doing what Jesus does. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, because the temple's not a monument to Jesus. The temple is where Israel and the nations can hear the word of God. And now Jesus here, as the Son of God, is in the temple teaching people. He's answering their questions. He's telling them who he is because Luke says, note this, Jesus is preaching the gospel. Literally, Jesus is proclaiming the good news to anyone who will listen to him. And perhaps there were hundreds gathered in one of the courtyards. Jesus is connecting all of the Bible together. He is in the Old Testament as he was so many times before in the synagogue, pointing to the book of Isaiah, perhaps, pointing to the book of Micah, perhaps, showing that all the promises, all the prophecies, all the Psalms that spoke of the coming king actually speak of him. He is giving people the good news because that's what Jesus is. He's good news, and he brings good news. And in the middle of that, he gets interrupted by people who don't think he has the authority. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up. Now, I've told you before, number one Bible reading tip, slow down and notice details. Luke wants you to see the crowd that comes to Jesus. The people are listening, but he's going to be interrupted by three very important groups, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. That is Luke's way of saying everybody who mattered in the religious authorities of Israel all came to Jesus at once. The top of the priestly caste, the experts in the Hebrew scriptures, and those with respect among the people, they all came to him and said to him, tell us by what authority, there it is, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now, this is going to be good. 
You ever been on the other side of this? You come with a big gotcha question and somebody asks you a question in return? How did that make you feel? When instead of an apology, you got a question back. Generally speaking, that doesn't go well, and it's not going to go well right now. I also will ask you a question. Now, tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? I just need to parse the Jewishness of Jesus' language and also take you further back in the story. All the way back in Luke chapter 3, you may remember the story of John the Baptist. He is a relative of Jesus, a little bit older than Jesus, and in football terms, he was the lead blocker. He wasn't the Christ. He wasn't the one that God was sending to save the world, but he came just before him. John was a powerful preacher. He did no miracles, but he had a powerful message. And he is continually telling people, there's a man coming behind me. I'm not worthy to untie his, the straps on his sandals. But when he comes, you listen. And you may remember in the Gospel of John, John one day stops preaching and points at Jesus and says, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And shortly thereafter, John says, it's time for me to decrease because he has to increase. I'm done. If the pathway is clear, the fullback doesn't matter anymore. And the trouble is, the people loved John and listened to him. Even Roman soldiers had their hearts touched by John's message. And in great numbers, people were being baptized with John saying, we agree with you. We will look for the one you're preaching about. When he shows up, we're going to be ready to believe in him. Guess who didn't believe any of it? This crowd, the same bunch that is asking Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? So the question for Jesus, from Jesus for them is, when John was baptizing people so that they could identify with his message, was he from heaven? In other words, did God send him? Or was John self-appointed? Because Jesus knows exactly what the authorities think of him. They think that Jesus is a man of no importance from a backwater town who was raised in a carpenter's family and has a suspicious birth story because the rumor is that John, Jesus showed up before his parents were married and his enemies know this and will occasionally throw this back in his face. They think he's a self-appointed fraud. So Jesus says, you want to ask me about my authority? Let me ask you a question before I came on the scene. Was John self-appointed or did God send him? I love the detail in the way Luke tells this little part of Jesus' life. It's a little comical. Look in verse 5. They discussed it with, what's it say? They discussed it with one another. I don't know if you can see this. These men have self-righteously gathered up their robes and presented themselves in front of Jesus as the custodians of the one true faith. And their question is, how dare you? Jesus says, I have a simple question. Everybody remembers John. Everybody made up their mind about John. What do you think about John? They gathered those robes back up, walked off probably about 20 yards so Jesus couldn't hear them and had a very quick conference. Here's what they're saying. If we say from heaven, we, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, in other words, if we tell Jesus that John was self-appointed, all the people will stone us to death for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. Can you believe the cowardice? What are they doing? They're punting. They find themselves, Jesus' question has put them in a difficult position. Luke lets you overhear their conversation. If we agree with the crowd and we agree with John about himself that God sent him, he'll have us because it's very obvious we didn't believe in John and we don't believe in Jesus. If, on the other hand, we say that John was self-appointed, all the people are going to kill us because they believe that John was a prophet. They answered instead that they did, not know where, they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What's he doing? He's not wasting truth on people who don't want to hear it anyway. 
please remember this in your dealings with Jesus. He has mind, will, strength, power, direction, and purpose of his own. He really is, and he's going to prove it here in the Gospel of Luke. He really is the Son of God. He doesn't owe anyone anything, including explanations. And as the Son of God, he has a godly, regal dignity that is not always willing to tell people the truth if he already knows they won't listen. These men, cowardly, backed off, and the people, the self-appointed experts who should have known said, we don't know. On the way to answering the question that they're asking, Luke tells us something important. By what authority does Jesus do all this? Here's the first part of the answer before Jesus becomes very explicit. When spiritual leaders prefer power or popularity to the truth, it's a disaster for everyone. Let me step out of the ancient world and into our own day. It's going to be harder to be a Christian in the years to come. The United States has been a historical anomaly where being a Christian practically from the day of this nation's founding was actually a blessing and a privilege and a help. That will not always be so in the United States. I'm actually very peaceful. I'm actually very hopeful. I'm actually very calm even in these days and as we face the days to come because of what we've been singing about and what the Bible tells us about God. God is faithful. He doesn't depend on circumstances. He doesn't depend on me figuring things out. But for all of that peace and for all that calm and for all the confidence I can have in God, it is also true, mark my words, in the years to come for yourself and certainly for your children, to tenaciously hang on to who Jesus is, to continually hear and love the truth and trust the truth and share the truth with others of who Jesus is, that's not going to get easier. It's going to be harder. And in the days to come, people like me who have been given the trust of others of opening the Bible and helping people understand what God said, we're going to have our own hearts and minds pulled by popularity and by power because every person here who is questioning Jesus, some of them are quite wealthy, all of them have prestige, and they make a decision in that moment about what they're going to publicly be willing to say because they love power and they love their popularity. This has always been the case. It's the case for ordinary people, and it's, it, it's also the case for people also ordinary ourselves who are entrusted with moments like this to open the Bible with you. As a Christian, you want to follow Jesus, you want to hold on to the truth at any cost, and you want to go in the company of people in your congregation, including and beginning with your spiritual leaders who are always willing to tell you the truth of what Jesus said and what God's Word said, not their opinion, but what God has made clear to prefer the truth over popularity. This has always been a struggle for people. Listen to the way John explained it in John chapter 12. If you have our app, the notes were delivered. If you picked up a bullet, then this passage is actually printed out. I want you, this is just before the death of Jesus. Jesus has become incredibly clear and loud about his identity before going to the cross, and I want you to see what's happening in the hearts of people, including the spiritual authorities. John 12, 42 and 43. Will you read it with me? The Bible tells us this. Many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Wow. Many people, including the spiritual leaders in Jesus' day, knew who he was, but they would not publicly confess it. They would not own up to it. They would not own up to being his followers for one simple reason. They preferred the applause of people rather than the applause, rather than the glory that comes from God. That fight never stops. The reason the question of authority is always going to be at the heart of your discipleship to Jesus, if you're already a Christian, 
or your decision whether to trust Jesus to save you from your sin, it will always have to do with authority. The reason our nation and every nation in all of human history is continually divided and continually in lawsuits or shooting wars is because of a question of authority. We've been talking about them. It's easy to be hard on people long ago and far away. Let's talk a little bit about ourselves. Where would you say that most Americans in 2021 find the source of authority? Who do we look to primarily to tell us what is right and wrong and how to live our lives? ourselves. We love our own path. This is the problem. The clarity that Jesus has is always going to be a problem because Jesus is being questioned, but he's also forcing the question on people. Jesus is doing all these things to face everyone with this question, is Jesus right to do all this? To answer them, he's going to tell them a question, but you need to know, and it's all across the Gospels, Jesus does not leave a mild respect for him as an option for us. The way most people in the modern, increasingly secular Western world, and it's also true in much of the in much of the eastern side of the world, the way most people prefer to deal with Jesus is, I'm not ready to call him God. I'm not ready to say he died for sinners and rose from the dead. But I will say this, he had some great teachings. He has some wonderful values. He has great wisdom to offer. That's fine, as good as it goes. It's better than open hatred. But you need to understand, Christian, and you need to understand if you're making your mind up about Jesus, that is not an option. Jesus himself leaves people. He's always pressing the question. He's even going to ask his disciples two questions. Who do people say that I am? And they give him the various theories, and then he's going to say, and who do you say that I am? Because he knows what not everybody's willing to admit, that it's a matter of life and death. He's the Son of God who brings God's good news. That's why he was in the temple. That's why Jesus was preaching the gospel. That's why he cleaned the temple out in the first place. Now Jesus is going to answer the question, with a parable. And it is one of the most violent and surprising parables that Jesus ever told. It begins in verse 9. Jesus said to them in verse 8, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. Notice John Luke's detail. Always again, when you're reading the Bible, slow down. The authorities came and questioned him. They didn't really want to hear what he had to say, so he exposes them, and then he tells a parable to whom? To the people. The religious authorities are gone. Their mind is made up. The die is cast for them. They've set the machinery in in motion that is actually going to kill Jesus, but there's still hope for the people. So Jesus tells them a parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out. In other words, rented it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. This is common practice in the ancient world. It still happens today. My family on my mother's side are wheat farmers. Some people that have inherited some of that land, haven't worked it a day in their lives, but they get a check every year from the farmers who do. Jesus is telling us about a very ordinary thing that happened in Israel. A landowner has a vineyard. He doesn't want to work it himself. He appears to be a man of some means. He goes far away to another country but leaves farmers behind to work it. And when it's time for him to get paid, they're going to keep most of it. But when it's time for him to have his proceeds, verse 10, some of the fruit of the vineyard, he sends a servant to get payment. Look at the end of verse 10. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. I want you to notice the detail. It's getting worse. The first guy gets a beating, maybe a few slaps, maybe he gets kicked. He's sent away with nothing. The second man comes, he receives a beating, and Luke adds the detail. Jesus adds the detail in his story of the parable. This man is treated him, is treated shamefully. 
Then and now, this part of the world is bound up by honor. So they not only beat this man, they did something in their culture to humiliate him. And he sent another servant. They, treated, they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yes, yet a third. This one also they wounded. It's getting worse. And they cast him out. The picture I take from that is that this man was seriously injured and physically thrown off the property. He didn't walk away empty-handed. He was thrown like an object down the road after taking a severe beating. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? Don't read any further. What would you do? You own some land, you've let it out, you've rented it out to people. They're going to feed their families. They're actually going perhaps to really increase their wealth by the use of your land. You just want proceeds that are, have been agreed upon with you as the owner of the property. You've given them no trouble. You've given them their complete trust to work the land and to get the best use out of it. You send one employee, they beat him. You send another, they not only beat him physically, they embarrass him. You send a third, and you hear that this third man has been wounded and hurled off your property. What are you going to do now? Sue. A very American answer. Do you think these are the kind of people who will listen to a legal complaint? No. What you're going to do is you're going to come in force. You're going to use weapons. You're going to send authorities. You're going to bring somebody armed. You're going to roll a little heavier than they're prepared for, and you're going to get justice. Listen, when you're reading parables, slow down. Parables are like jokes. They always have a twist. There's always something surprising in them, and the twist has the point. Look what this man did instead. Verse 13, then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. Just sit with that for a second. Does that make any sense to you? How do you think the son might have felt about it? Verse 14, when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. Now, what kind of twisted reasoning is this? It depends on the culture. It depends on the society. But there are many places in the law where if someone occupies a property and uses it as their own for a very long period of time, they may actually come to own it. But these men have become so twisted in their thinking, they say, he sent us three employees. Here comes the beloved son. He's the heir. If we kill him, he'll have to give us everything he owns. Wicked, sinful, nonsensical, but they do it. They threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Jesus has another question for the people listening to the crowd. The man sent three servants. They were all beaten. They were all embarrassed. He sent his son. They killed his own son. What's going to happen now? Now are you ready for justice to be done? So is Jesus in the parable. Look in verse 16. He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Here's the twist. When they heard this, they said, surely not. Now what? Why are they surprised? This is finally the part of the parable where it begins to make sense. The part that didn't make sense was being patient enough to send three servants and watch all three of them take a beating. It made even less sense to send to such violent men the beloved son unarmed so that he could be murdered. Now, finally, Jesus says the owner of the vineyard is going to come and to do justice, and the crowd says, surely not. 
Why is that? Why that reaction? You need to understand what anyone in the crowd would have understood, anyone who had gone to synagogue, anyone who had received a basic spiritual Jewish education in the time of Jesus can read this parable as he tells it. The vineyard is Israel. The tenants are Israel's spiritual leaders. Guess who the owner of the vineyard is? The owner is God. The God who patiently planted the vineyard and made it flourish in a place where it had no business surviving. The God who owned everything and expected from His people faithfulness, expected some fruitfulness and some obedience back in return for His costly investment. Jesus is telling them, He's telling the nation of Israel in his day, your leaders have led you so far into darkness that you've now at a point of judgment. These servants are all the prophets, including John the Baptist who came before me, who faithfully told you who God is and what he wanted. Your Bible is so thick primarily because it is composed of the prophets in the Old Testament. Some of the longest books and certainly the longest section in the Bible are the prophets of Israel continually telling Israel across centuries who God is and what he wants. And the story of Israel until Jesus comes is one of chronic failure. Beginning with Abraham, continuing with Isaac and Jacob and King David and his wise son Solomon in the nation of Israel, every time a leader rises, he is eventually exposed as sinful and as foolish as the people he was intended to serve. Jesus is utterly unique. He's not another prophet. All the prophets have come. Israel in their hard-heartedness have rejected him. But God in his great mercy and yes, his faithfulness has sent his beloved son. This is love. The twist in the story is the shocking idea that the owner of the vineyard having sent his prophets, his servants, and having them say seen them mistreated and murdered for so long, will send instead of justice, will send his son. Jesus is that beloved son, and Christian, this is the love of God. See, everyone struggles with Jesus all of their lives before they start following him and after. There's not an honest disciple here who isn't struggling with Jesus at some point because the question of authority is always rising up in the human heart. Before you come to Jesus, and maybe you're watching online, or maybe you're here in the tent, and you haven't made up your mind about Jesus, perhaps the most you've ever been willing to give Jesus is that polite respect. I want you to see that Jesus himself does not consider himself another wise man who in the 21st century would give a TED talk. He's more than a purveyor of values and good ideas. He is presenting himself as the very Son of God, as the fulfillment of all the prophecies of this book. The beloved Son who comes in faithful obedience to the Father to suffer the same fate that all the prophets did before him. And the reason he did that is love. And before you decide to be a Christian, the struggle is to surrender to his authority. To say to Jesus, I agree with you, I'm a sinner deserving of judgment. My conscience tells me, my disobedience tells me, my perpetual moral failures tell me that I need a Savior and I need a new boss to run my life. The minute you surrender to Jesus in that way, He will save you. I tell you that on the authority of Scripture, and I also tell you that not on authority, but on the basis, thank God, of my own experience that Jesus saves sinners like me. And he will do that for you. But you may have noticed, Christian, even after you surrender to Jesus, even though he's the master and you're the disciple, he's the teacher and you're the apprentice, you may still occasionally argue with him. Do you ever do this? Do you ever say to Jesus, being clearly confronted by his person in his word, I'm not so sure about that. And you want to stand with the religious authorities and punt and say, I don't know. It's always a matter of authority, but behold the God who loves you in this way to continually send you his word and to ultimately send you his son. The people of Israel did not want to hear it, but Jesus has a final word for them, and it's a word picture that I need to explain. Jesus is done with the parable, and I'm done with the sermon, but listen to this. It's vital. 
When they heard this, they said, surely not. In other words, surely God is not done with us. Surely our leaders are not being replaced. Surely the nation of Israel is not going to enter into a new kind of life. Verse 17, but he looked directly at them. Notice the detail. Bible, story telling, Bible stories are always very quick. Luke wants you to see the intensity of this moment. Jesus looks these men in the eye and says, what then is this that is written? He's going to quote the Old Testament to them. He's going to quote Psalm 118 again. It's this very same psalm that the crowd sang when Jesus entered the city. He's going to quote another part of it. What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's in Psalm 118. It's a word picture. Let me explain. In the ancient world, the most important and the biggest part of the construction was the cornerstone. It was a giant rock. Depending on the size of the building, its size would vary as well. But it was a big, strong piece of stone, the biggest and the strongest that could be found to support the weight of the building. It oriented the whole building. It gave the building its most important resting place. If the cornerstone was not used or if the cornerstone itself was faulty, that building was going to fall. We see that happening here in Huntington Beach because this is a sandy and swampy town, and every once in a while, very beautiful buildings have to be torn down because their foundation was not secure. Jesus is saying, this is what, just as the psalm said, this is what your spiritual leaders have done to you. They've presented to you a whole life. They've told you who God is. They've told you the way to eternal life. But in all their building, in all the beauty that they've created, they forgot the cornerstone. That is the man that is speaking to you. I'm the cornerstone, verse 18. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. In other words, those who attack me and those who reject me will be broken. And when that stone falls on anyone, it will crush him. This is really important, Christian, and I want you to hear that this is Jesus saying this, not a preacher. This is one of those unpopular truths that are so quickly overlooked or said quietly. Listen, please, when God's love is rejected, only God's judgment remains. God sent not only prophets to tell people who he was, he sent his beloved son knowing he would be killed. The Son went into the world. That's what we celebrated at Christmas just a few weeks ago, knowing full well that the rejection and the hatred and the murder at the hands of people He would die for awaited Him. The Father and the Son have had one mind and one will and one purpose in this. All of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that affirmed Jesus at his baptism. This is what it has all been leading to. The love of God will be offered through the sacrifice of the Son of God. And if that love is rejected, only God's judgment remains. And it's Jesus telling you that. Not a pastor, not a pundit. It is Jesus himself who has that kind of clarity. Now often people will say, well, I don't understand that. If people reject my love, I just leave them alone. I don't judge them. Why does God love people and then judge them if they reject His faithful love? It's a good question. That's a very simple answer. Ready? God is God. He's not like us. One of the most fundamental truths about God is that He is separate from us. He is holy. He's not another person in search of a relationship. Many people can reject your kindness and reject your love, and you should leave them alone. But the love that is being displayed, the sacrifice that is being told in this parable, is not the love of an ordinary person. It is the love of God, who is the king and the creator and the giver of life. The breath you just drew, that was a gift from God. Every good thing that you've ever enjoyed, including the capacity to love your family and your friends and enjoy your work and have good food and all the pleasures that this life offers and the idea to know who God is and to love Him for 
the sake of himself, all of that is a gift from God. And if that is rejected, nothing else remains but judgment when the creatures dare to treat the Creator that way. Now, Luke is going to tell you that God's work is going to continue and Jesus is going to be vindicated. He's going to be betrayed by one of his own disciples. He's going to be judged by sinful men. He's going to be crucified between two thieves. But he's going to be vindicated by taking back his life through the resurrection. Why does Jesus end the parable quoting himself in Psalm 118 as the cornerstone? The warning in the parable is this. Jesus is the cornerstone, and listen, he will either save people's lives or wreck them. That's who Jesus is. He will either be savior or judge. He will be one who saves people or one who stands against people and judges them. The apostles knew this, which is why you hear Peter preach after the resurrection in the book of Acts. I have one final scripture that I want us all to read together. After the resurrection of Jesus, Luke kept writing, and he wrote the book of Acts immediately after the gospel of Luke to tell us what the disciples did with this truth. Here's Peter preaching in front of a crowd, the same crowd that is horrified by the parable who is telling Jesus, surely you're mistaken. Read Acts chapter 4, verses 11 and 12 with me off your notes. Everybody have it? Here's the truth of who Jesus is, as understood not only by Jesus himself, but by his first disciples. Read with me. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Did you get that? The cornerstone that saves people's lives, that gives people security for their life to face death and to have eternal life instead, he is often rejected by religious leaders. Then and now, there are many people who will say less of Jesus than Jesus said of himself. Hearing the truth of Jesus, they will find it unpalatable and find it unpopular, and they will dare not say it or believe it. They will not trust it themselves. But Peter knew the truth. There is, no, there is salvation in no one else because there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So in any crowd, any time the good news of Jesus is presented, as I have just tried to do for you, it always comes back to a question of authority. Some of you watching online or perhaps here in person, you need to make your mind up regarding Jesus and trust Him. You need to make this the day that you humbly say to Him and yourself, enough of being my own boss, He's right, I'm wrong, I'm a sinner, He's a Savior, I'm turning away from my sin and I'm trusting Him, I'm asking you, Jesus, to save me. And He'll do it. He promised that's why he died. That's why he rose from the dead. And many other people, perhaps the majority in this crowd, are those of us who already trust Jesus, who are already following Jesus. It still remains a question of authority. Christian, please live your life the way he tells you to. Stop living life according to your own understanding. Trust that he knows what, what is best and that things like the Beatitudes were meant for you to be lived in obedience as his disciples, where, for instance, you pray for your enemies instead of hating them, where you become quick to forgive and you become quick to give and you are quick to love and to show mercy because that's who Jesus is and all you are is his disciple. Either way, it's a question of authority and the question as always is this, are you going to trust Jesus? Or are you going to keep on trusting yourself? Let's pray together and decide, shall we? Would you bow your heads with me? Let me speak first to those who may not have made up their mind about Jesus Christ just yet. Do you believe Him? Do you trust Him? Do you trust Him with your sin? Have you come to the point where you're humble enough to recognize in front of Him that you cannot save yourself, you'll confess yourself in need of a Savior, 
and you'll ask him to trade lives with you. Take your sin and give you instead his righteousness, his faithfulness, his goodness. If you've never done that, I'm inviting you in the name of Jesus to do it now. To confess him as Savior. You don't need anybody's words, including mine, but you can simply come to him with simple childlike trust and say, Jesus, you're right, I'm wrong. I've sinned, I've fallen short, I've violated your rules. My own conscience tells me that. But I'm giving up, I'm turning myself in, I'm turning myself over to you. Please save me, please save this needy person, this needy sinner. Be my savior, be my boss, be my authority. And Christian, the struggle to keep the authority where it actually always is, keep that authority in the hands of Christ and do what Christ says, that will never, ever stop on this side of glory. Maybe you've been trusting him for salvation, but you haven't been giving him the obedience he as your king and savior deserves. Maybe you've been trying to work a bargain where he saves you and you go on and live as you please. If you've been in a season like that, let me invite you to be honest with him and ask him to forgive that sin and to put you back faithfully following him. Lord Jesus, I pray for those who don't know you. They're making their minds up about you right now. Give them right now, Lord, the humility to hear you calling, feel your conviction, turning them away out of the path that they've chosen and falling in step and following you. Pray that they would do that right now. If there are anybody here, any number of people who know, Lord, through the preaching of your word that they have need of you, I pray that they would call out to you right now and say, Jesus, please save me. For those of us who are your disciples, Lord, we're so quick to take, take the authority back. It's never ours, but we like to think that it is. We like to act like we can live on our own. We can walk the rest of the road safely home because we know better than you. Forgive us. Make this church, Lord, a wholehearted band and family of disciples that will follow you and love the truth and tell the truth always at any cost. I pray this in Jesus' name.